Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today on ORP, Steve and I are going to be talking about the Suicide Squad, both in comics and in the animated and live-action films. The Suicide Squad has been around for 63 years, and they are at least one of my favorite teams. I have personally only read the first 23 issues of the New 52 run, uh, but I have watched the four movies we're going to talk about uh, at least a couple of times, and those are 2014's Batman Assault on Arkham, uh, the 2016 Suicide Squad, 2018 Suicide Squad, Hell to Pay, and last but not least, The Suicide Squad from 2021. Uh, but I understand you have a bit more to add in the comic book front than I do, Steve, so um, I think we should get into that. But before we do, um, do you have any general thoughts or opinions about the Suicide Squad? Um, not so much as you'd think, unfortunately. Uh, Suicide Squad is one of my comics blind spots, and it's not one of those books I followed all that heavily until fairly recently. I mean, it's a book I knew about by reputation, and I'm a fan of the John Ostrander stuff that I've read. And I appreciate the, the films we're going to talk about, but I didn't really read that much of the Suicide Squad comic until the Volume 3 miniseries that Ostrander did. That was his uh, brief return to the team, and that was prior to the New 52. And the later comics by other creators didn't really speak to me all that much personally. I mean, Secret Six was more my DC villain of, team of choice, and I'll talk a little bit about that book because it's the book that made me a Deadshot fan, among other reasons. But I will say that I've grown an appreciation for the modern Suicide Squad, at least as seen in the films. Uh, when they're done well, I mean, you get enough of the feel that Joss, uh, John Ostrander established on his runs on the comic series. Sounds like we're in similar boats then, uh, even if we've read different Suicide Squad comics. Uh, both of us are more familiar with them from the animated and live action films. Uh, so this one will be a little different than our usual comic book episodes, uh, but that doesn't mean we won't get into the comics. In fact, why don't you start us off, Steve? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, most people know Suicide Squad from the modern day version, usually either from the films or the animated uh, the films that we've talked about. Uh, most comic fans uh, probably are more aware of them because of John Ostrander's run or because of the later versions when Harley Quinn became a member. But in fact, the Suicide Squad was a team that existed long before then. Uh, they were a Silver Age concept, and the characters were envisioned as World War II-era heroes. Uh, the original Silver Age squad debuted in The Brave and the Bold, uh, number 25, in 1959. And they were created by uh, Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew. Um, the team included Rick Flagg Sr., the team medic named uh, Karen Grace, uh, physicist Jess Bright, and Dr. Hugh Evans, who was an astronomer. Uh, the original Suicide Squad was closer to a war comic, and they had no supervillains in it at all. In fact, they were closer to something like the Challengers of the Unknown, 
with a specialized task force going on crazy science adventures, you know, finding dinosaurs and lost lands, dealing with alien invasions and so forth. But it did keep the basic idea of sending the group on suicide missions, and Rick Flag was the main connection to the original series. Um, after a while, the original Suicide Squad fell through, only to be reinvented later in the form we recognize today. Yeah, Crisis on Infinite Earths from 1985 changed the whole landscape of DC Comics by combining multiple Earths into the, their multiverse into one. Um, kind of like what happened with Flashpoint creating the New 52. That meant that a lot of titles and characters had to start over with different backstories and personalities even. We talked a bit already in a previous episode about how much Jason Todd's character changed after Crisis on Infinite Earths, and it would seem that the Suicide Squad was no exception to the wave of changes that swept over DC Comics in the years following 1985. Several of those characters were relaunched in issue number three uh, of the six-issue series called Legends, uh, but I think you could tell us more about what changes came to the Suicide Squad in the Legends title, Steve. Uh, sure thing. Uh, the modern Suicide Squad was created in 1987 during the early post-crisis era, and it was the brainchild of writer John Ostrander. Um, at that time, Ostrander was new to DC Comics. Uh, he was mainly known before that for an independent book called Grimjack, which he created with Tim Truman. Um, Ostrander was brought into, into DC in the late 80s, where he did a book called Legends, uh, drawn by the legendary John Byrne. Uh, Ostrander created the modern le squad for Legends, including characters like Amanda Waller and Rick Flagg Jr., who was the son of the original squad's leader. The first ongoing Suicide Squad title then spun out of the Legends book, which was also written by Ostrander, and that book lasted for 66 issues. Um, the book did a number of things that were unheard of in a superhero comic at that time. In the first place, it's the first notable team book that started a team of supervillains. I mean, there'd been many superhero teams by that time, and there'd been many supervillain teams, but none that headlined their own title, really. Uh, the other innovative thing is that anyone could die at any time, and they very often did. Uh, Suicide Squad had to earn its name, and so the villains on the team were typically expendable. You had a core of characters who would usually make it out and be the focus of the team, but deaths in the book were frequent, which makes sense given the dangerous missions the squad went on, and the fact that Waller would usually regard the villains as disposable assets. Um, that approach set the squad apart even from most villain teams, and it would inspire other groups that came after them. Uh, the first Suicide Squad to appear in that book included uh, Rick Flagg, uh, Bronze Tiger, Deadshot, uh, Captain Boomerang, an old Charlton heroine named Nightshade. Uh, she was the basis for Silk Spectre. Uh, a couple of old Firestorm villains named Plastique and Mindboggler, and a spy named Nemesis. Later on, a number of other characters would come and go during the Ostrander run, uh, mainly cannon fodder villains, but not always. Some well-known villains would occasionally jump in and out of the book to do missions, including Penguin, Poison Ivy and Black Adam. Uh, you'd also get some heroic characters too, including the Samurai Katana from The Outsiders and even Barbara Gordon, who uh, became Oracle during her time in the book. Um, I do want to eventually spend some time talking about the core squad characters because that group is probably the reason why the squad is so memorable uh, after all these years. Uh, not, not that anyone on the Suicide Squad is really a you know a team player, <laughs> but it seems <laughs> to me that Penguin, Poison Ivy, and Black Adam would be extremely bad fits for any team. Uh, I also find myself wondering what the heck did they do to control Black Adam? I mean, they could not have put a bomb in his neck, and and he cares about nothing, uh, at least as far as I know. Uh, but power and killing Captain Marvel and Superman. I mean. Can you explain how any of that worked? 
Um, I haven't read those issues yet, but I admit I'm curious myself. I mean, this was probably when Black Adam's human personality, Theo, was separate from the Black Adam persona, so it would have been easier to control that way. Uh, Theo was a more compliant and redeemable character. Maybe they were able to get the bomb in Adam's head while he was in human form and it stayed in there as Black Adam. I mean, it'd be really dangerous, and Black Adam is a difficult person to control on a good day, or any Marvel for that matter. But it's something I could see Waller trying. Oh, that's fair enough. And I didn't know about Theo, actually. Um, I think that theory is probably the best one we have right now. Uh, but why don't we get back to the Ostrander run? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, anyway, the Ostrander run of Suicide Squad never ran too far from its roots, uh, no matter how different it was. Um, the main connection to the original run was Rick Flagg Jr., who was in many ways the hero of the book. But he also had a new version of Karen Grace, uh, an old flame of Rick's, who was his love interest for a while. Um, more than that, um, I think Ostrander tried to keep the war comic tone of the original squad with a team doing international and political-based missions. Some of the stories didn't age too well. I mean, there's an early mission about the squad trying to re rescue a Soviet defector who didn't want to leave the country. Um, others, however, were pretty daring and interesting, like a mission against an extremist politician who dressed up as a superhero to recruit for a neo-Nazi group. I kid you not. Um, but a lot of stories dealt with international intrigue or dealing with issues like the prison system or other things. Suicide Squad did not shy away from the hot topics, but when it did tackle them, they were usually well handled and it was still good entertainment. Uh, given that the squad is a government-backed group that often deals with fighting wars in other countries, I don't think that was a bad approach for the comic to take. In practice, Suicide Squad is a superhero comic with elements of a war comic. I can certainly see that about that age of a Suicide Squad. However, and and maybe maybe this is just me, um, but that kind of stuff seems to take the villain out of the villains. I mean, the stuff you're talking about there actually sounds fairly respectable. And I mean, even patriotic to some extent at the end of the day. I mean, you even called it a superhero comic. Uh, in my opinion, Task Force X works best as they are in modern day. Uh, they stay true to their villain selves. They are controlled and motivated by the only kinds of things that, in my opinion, could truly motivate a hardcore criminal to do dangerous suicide missions. Uh, their deaths and the and the time off their sentences. Um, also, I like that there is something corrupt about both the missions and the head of Task Force X, Amanda Waller. It is a scary concept to think about someone with as much power as Amanda Waller with zero restraint. And that's actually what I love about Waller's character. Uh, that woman is colder than the ninth circle of hell. The Suicide Squad is there to cross the lines that others will not, and I like the idea of someone as dark and sadistic as Waller using them as her own private strike force under Argus when she has a personal mission um, or vendetta or the government just doesn't seem to agree with her. Uh, but that's just me. I, I understand you have some things about the wall to say yourself, don't you, Steve? Uh, yes, but I will respond a bit on the villainous element first. I mean, you did see the villains do some notably bad things from time to time particularly people like Boomerang and Deadshot. And their missions could very often cross moral lines. I mean, Rick Flagg would very often object about things Waller would do with Task Force X, like forced memory modification. It's just that you also had characters like Flagg, Nightshade, or Bronze Tigers that had moral qualms about what they were doing, too. Ah, uh, okay. Th that is a bit more like what I was going for. So thanks for clearing that up. Sure, anytime. But um, as to your question about Waller, what I find interesting about Amanda Waller is that even though she represents the government, she's easily the most evil character in the entire squad. <laughs> this woman recruits sociopaths like Boomerang and Deadshot, 
um, you know, crazy people like Harley Quinn and characters like King Shark or Killer Croc who regularly eat human beings. <laughs> but Waller is truly worse than any of them. She has no qualms whatsoever about killing whoever she needs to, using whoever she needs to as leverage, or any of a number of corrupt or dirty tactics to get what she wants. The worst of it is, is that Waller truly believes that what she does is necessary and even just, which makes her the scariest type of villain. She's a really great character, and it would take someone like that to organize and run a group like Task Force X. But Waller is so evil that she makes the supervillains that work for her look like cheap, low-rent thugs by comparison. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked if that was Ostrander's entire point with her character. It would seem that we are all in agreement for the most part about Waller and her purpose on the team then. Uh, Waller is definitely the perfect director for a team like the Suicide Squad. I think, honestly, that any other type of director would fall short in properly keeping control of the team. You have to have skin of leather and a heart of cold steel to be the director of Task Force X. So I think Ostrander was a genius there. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, Rick Flagg Jr. has gradually become one of my favorite squad members, um, probably because Rick is pretty much Captain America without the shield, the flag suit, or the serum, and I dig heroes like that. I mean, he's a career military man who's devoted to his duty, and he just wants to follow in the footsteps of his late father, but being a soldier is all that he knows. But he's very much the conscience and the leader of the team when he's with the squad, and he's usually the first person that will call Waller out when she's gone too far. And I think Waller, on some level, values that back flag and even respects him, which is why she keeps him around. But she's not going to let him stop her when she's convinced that the wrong things need to be done to do the right thing. You need somebody on the group who's willing to be the hero when it's called for. And, and then that's flag in most incarnations of the squad. I can certainly see the importance of an anchor on a team with, with a strong moral compass. You know, in war, at least from what I understand, I've obviously never fought in a war, um, but the lines between right and wrong get blurry when life and death are on the line. Um, when Rick Flag Jr. with Rick Flag Jr. as the anchor for the team, then you know that no matter how crazy the storm gets on the field, they won't stray too far away from the center. Yeah, you need a solid, reliable guy to lead in the field, and Rick does it well. But let's talk about the actual villains now. Um, Deadshot is a villain that I like, but more because of his appearances as Secret Six, though he's good with the squad as well. Um, I'll talk about Secret Six later on because it's an important series on Laudan's character. And it also is a major influence on the Suicide Squad animated film. Uh, for now, I'll just say that Deadshot is a consummate professional who is coldly locked on his target. But he does have his family as his one redeeming feature. He does grow a bit over time, and he is one of the better characters in the series. I think my favorite regular member of the Suicide Squad has got to be Deadshot. One thing I have learned about Deadshot, though, is that you don't threaten him or mention his daughter. In the comics, he calls that making the list. And that means uh, there's no way, no matter how long it takes, you're going to die. <laughs> I don't know if Deadshot has always been like this, but the Deadshot I know is a long-range planner, a brilliant tactician, and a great leader despite preferring to work by himself. I love that he sees through everyone's bullshit 99% of the time. Plus, is it me or is he simultaneously both scary, lethal, and cool as hell? <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. he always has his shit together, even when he's up to his neck in it. He's very good at both hand-to-hand -hand combat as well as a laundry list of weapons. Like Bullseye from Marvel, Deadshot never misses as long as someone does not interfere with the shot. The only times I've ever seen or even heard of him missing was when he was hit by someone while he was taking the shot or if someone was he wasn't expecting moves the target out of the way. But even in those cases, he still gets a bullet in them, just not the kill shot. And, and let me tell you, 
tell you when that happens, he is pretty pissed about it. It is a matter of professional pride with him. But unlike Bullseye, Deadshot is totally sane. He knows he knows everything there is to know about his craft and has killing with ranged weapons down to a science. Basically, when it comes to assassins, Deadshot is my go-to guy. In fact, Deadshot is one of the main reasons I even read Suicide Squad. I, I freaking love me some Deadshot. Same here. Uh, Deadshot is more of a sociopath than a flat-out psycho. He usually kills for money, usually to give his daughter a better life, or out of some kind of a professional pride. But he's not crazy like Harley or the residents of Arkham. He's a stone-cold killer, but he has some humanity, and he lives by his own personal code, and I respect that about him. So let's get into Deadshot's favorite sparring partner. <laughs> now, I'll be honest, Captain Boomerang is not a character who ever had a huge impact on me until I read back, went back and read some of the Ostrander stories. But I see now why Boomerang is such an enduring member of the squad, because he's an absolute jerk. <laughs> Boomerang is the villain who pretty much embraces being the bad guy and can't be trusted at all, but who occasionally comes through, even if it's for his own reasons. Uh, one of my favorite Boomerang moments is when he flat out lets Mindboggler get killed because she embarrassed him in front of the squad earlier in the issue. Digger has a chance to save her, and he just walks away, and it says, it's not my problem. He's a petty creep. He's all about his own ego, but it's so fun to watch. And in a book like this, you need that one unrepentant bad guy who's good at being a troublemaker. I mean, much like Damon Targaryen, I mean, Captain Boomerang is an unrepentant bad guy who gets by just by being hugely entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a good hero is fun and entertaining to watch. They can be admirable and inspirational, and they can certainly bring in the readers. But, and maybe it's because I'm a horror writer for the most part, uh, but I think the more intriguing characters can often be the villains. This isn't a comic book example, but like in the 70s and the 80s, there was this show called Dallas, and the villain of that show was no doubt J.R. Ewing. Uh, from what I understand, he was a huge reason why people watched the show. You just love to hate him. It was kind of that, what will he do or say next type of thing. Uh, that is what Captain Boomerang is in the Suicide Squad. You know, he often argues with Deadshot over every petty little thing. Uh, sometimes I think he does it just to mess with Lawton. And he really comes off like a guy who enjoys being untrustworthy and despicable. And yet, I gotta say, I love their argument sometimes, even if I'm always on Deadshot's side. <laughs> Boomerang can be simultaneously entertaining and entertaining, and that makes for a good villain. Oh, for sure. I mean, Digger and Lawton have this cool rivalry going, but they have their friendly moments from time to time, too. Uh, Boomerang is a self-taught amateur who's trying to get one over on the professional, and Lawton is the pro killer who cares about his reputation and keeping to his personal code. So those two are going to lay into each other from time to time, and they're fun to watch together. Um, now, Bronze Tiger is a character I want to mention because he tends to be a recurring squad member from time to time. Ben Turner is a top martial artist, and he's actually very close in skill to the likes of Lady Shiva or Richard Dragon. He studied from the same uh, school of martial arts under their master, the O-sensei. Uh, Tiger's even one of the masters who trained Cassandra Kane, who is far and away the best fighter of DC. So this guy is really good at what he does. And he's in that elite class of martial artists who can give Batman a really hard time. And that is a short list. But uh, though Bronze Tiger is basically a good person who fights honorably, um, he's been manipulated and brainwashed by various villains, including the League of Assassins. So uh, Bronze Tiger typically fights with the squad as a way of atoning for the crimes he committed while he was brainwashed and paying his debt to society. He's another character that I've grown to like as I've read this Ostrander series, and he's typically Rick Flagg's uh, second in command. 
you know, I knew the stuff about him being one of the top martial artists uh, in DC, but I did not know the bit about atonement. In fact, that explains his character in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, which we'll get into later. I like that moral center to his character going back so far as well. I, I think I'm a bigger Bronze Tiger fan now. Um, but why don't we get into the last member of the Suicide Squad you wanted to talk about, Steve? Sure, I'd love to. Um, finally, I'll talk about Harley Quinn because she's the last of the core team members to join the group. In fact, the squad predates Harley's first appearances on Batman the Animated Series by several years. So she was never involved with any of the squads that John Ostrander was involved with. In fact, Harley first joined the squad with the New 52 incarnation of the squad from 2011. But probably because Harley became such a popular character, uh, Harley's been a fixture with the squad ever since then. I mean, the fact that Harley's been a headliner in so many films featuring the Suicide Squad has pretty much cemented her as a key member of the group, even if she didn't start out that way. Um, I will admit that while she's not a personal favorite of mine, I mean, Harley's a very good fit with the squad, and she does offer something that the team didn't have before. Harley is a great fit for the squad. Not only is there some comic re relief there with her morbid sense of humor, she's also intelligent and very scary when you consider how far she's willing to go, and that things can go from a sunny day to rivers of blood in a drop of a hat. Uh, plus... From what I read in the New 52 stuff, her connection to the Joker made for some really cool stories as well. In fact, there were several issues that would be just about Joker and Harley's past relationship or their breakup and Suicide Squad. It, it actually kind of started to feel like a Harley book at times. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just wasn't why I was reading the Suicide Squad book. As I mentioned before, uh, my main draw to the book was actually Deadshot. Deadshot is an awesome character, so I totally get that. I mean, I dig the core squad members in general, along with a few occasional members like Katana, Nightshade, and King Shark. And I like the way this series plays with the obscure DC villains, too, like some of the ones we see in the films. I must admit to only knowing about some of DC's C and D list characters because of groups like Suicide Squad. DC does a great job at spotlighting those lesser known characters. And honestly, cannon fodder seems like a great use for them. Uh, so I can see why so many were brought onto the Suicide Squad to die. Also, I really like Katana. That chick is a badass and I love her sword. Uh, but let's switch over to the section of the Suicide Squad that I have read from the New 52. Uh, when Flashpoint created the New 52 in 2011, a new Suicide Squad title was launched. The series was written, in my opinion, very well by Adam Glass with some great artwork by Federico uh, Dallacino and Ransom Getty. The title, which was the fourth volume of the series, would cross over with a few other sh uh, short-lived titles in the New 52, including Resurrection Man, Grifter, and Justice League of America's Vibe. The story behind the formation of Tax Force X was Amanda Waller, after her experiences working with the Black Ops unit, Team 7, realized that her teammates' lives were at too great of a risk when she was forced to kill an injured teammate. After that, she believed that good people shouldn't be put in that position when, expendable, when an expendable team would mean not risking lives that matter, which I think reflects that earlier uh, Ostrander run. Um, her team would primarily be used to eliminate and or retrieve high value targets or even fight terrorist organizations like Basilisk, who actually is actually an echo of the onslaught organization from John Ostrander's original Suicide Squad series. 
I have to be honest, um, Adam Glass is a name that I learned to avoid because I was a fan of Supernatural for a long time, and I didn't like too many of the episodes he wrote on that show, so I didn't pick up his version of the squad. Um, I will admit to being a Grifter fan, though, uh, and Team 7 as well. I mean, that's a character that would fit on the team if used right, but why don't you get into what happened next? To assemble her expendable team, Waller immediately goes to Bell Reeve and begins forcing death row inmates to undergo torture, training, and rigorous tests to evaluate their potential as members of her new Task Force X. However, only three qualified, and those were King Shark, Deadshot, who would be the team's field commander, and Harley Quinn. But soon my second favorite squad member, Chato Santana, a.k.a. El Diablo, joins the team. El Diablo is a powerful pyrokinetic that gets his powers from his tattoos. In fact, he has to get new tattoos whenever he burns through the ones he has. And you'll note that he is covered in tattoos. Um, I like Diablo. Uh, this is going to sound a little weird, but you're going to have to hear the whole sentence. <laughs> I like El Diablo because he accidentally killed a woman and children in a fire uh, while attempting to collect from a gang who are earning in his territory. Now, he had no idea he was killing women and children and seeing their burnt bodies reformed him. And he actually does his best to stay on a righteous path after that. Huh. Um, I think I can see where the Air Suicide Squad drew a bit from this run, and particularly with El Diablo. It seems like they got him right in that movie, which I'm glad to see. Um, because El Diablo is a really interesting character, and I like that he has genuine remorse over the terrible things he did when he was on the outside. Fire is a power that you really need to be careful with, or you end up causing a lot of death and destruction. Um, Diablo is a name that gives him a spiritual aspect as well. I mean, this is a guy who hates himself and fears that he truly has been taken over by the devil which would make sense for someone with a Hispanic upbringing who had been raised as a Catholic. So he's suffering from Catholic guilt as well as real remorse over his own past sins. That's a really compelling character to me. But uh, who else showed up in that series? Uh, the last three on that first team were Voltaic, um, Eric Needham, a.k.a. Black Spider, and believe it or not, James Gordon Jr. <laughs> uh, Savant was originally part of the team, uh, but he broke while he was being tortured by Waller in one of her tests. Uh, she wanted to see who could keep their mouth shut, and everyone passed the test with Savant. Uh, believe it or not, the psychopathic killer James Gordon was actually recruited by Waller to act as Bell Reeves' in-house psychiatric advisor. <laughs> that just cracks me right the hell up. That did not turn out well as James became obsessed with Waller. But as to the others I mentioned, Black Spider uh, was on the team, uh, was kind of like uh, Bronze Tiger to some extent. Um, he was an adept martial artist, uh, a ninja, in fact, and he was also a vigilante in Gossam. In fact, Black Spider was the one who busted Voltaic and the reason Voltaic was even in Bell Reef uh, to be picked out for the Suicide Squad. And speaking of Voltaic, um, I would like to talk about one of the squad's very first missions. Uh, the squad was sent to a football stadium where a techno-organic zombie virus had taken over the stadium to collect a specific target. The National Guard had shut down enough uh, to stop the situation from spreading, and the military was on its way to take the place out. But the only cure for the techno-organic zombie virus was the unborn child of a pregnant zombie who was immune to the virus. 
where Voltaic comes into this is that Deadshot, with malicious intent, had Voltaic shoot everyone aside from the squad with his electrokinetic powers, very casually, as if it was just a precaution. But in actuality, Deadshot knew that the authorities were going to be looking for someone to blame for the event when they finally got into the stadium and investigated. Deadshot wanted Voltaic's energy signature to be on every corpse in the place so that Voltaic would be the patsy for the event, a terrorist who went mad and killed everyone. Once Voltaic was done, Deadshot put a bullet in his head, which I think both demonstrates the forethought of Deadshot and that he too can be cold and ruthless, but also the disposable nature of C and D-list characters on the Suicide Squad. But that little rabbit hole aside, some of the other characters that eventually joined the team were Cheetah, Captain Boomerang I, George Digger Harkness, Light and Lime, Unknown Soldier, and Yo-Yo, Chang Jiru. I don't know a number of the characters you mentioned beyond maybe some of the names, but I'll take a crack at it. Uh, Black Spider is a character I mainly remember from different animated shows and films. I mean, he showed up in Young Justice, where he worked for the League of Shadows on that show. So the background you described makes sense for him, but I wasn't aware of his comic history. I mean, he strikes me as a dark twist on Spider-Man from what I've seen. In my opinion, he he really has very little in common with Spider-Man aside from having spider in their names. Uh, Black Spider is a ninja and ninja, and he does not, to my knowledge, possess any superpowers. Uh, but I think he did work for the League of Assassins for a time. Um, but but what did you think of that mission? That mission sounds pretty insane with techno organic viruses and zombies in the middle of everything. I do like that the squad is able to get dark and dirty when they have to. The twist with Voltaic is cool and a pretty clever move by Deadshot. I didn't know the character at all, but I can buy him being used by Laden like that. Um, like we've talked about, Laden is cool, professional, and always on his target, and he doesn't miss details. And electric powers can definitely be useful in the right situation. Um, I can talk about a few characters I do know, though. Uh, Savant was a Birds of Prey villain when he first showed up. I mean, I, I quite like Savant, actually. But speaking of Barbara Gordon villains, I'm not surprised that Gordon Jr. didn't work out. That guy is an out-and-out psycho, like almost Joker levels of psychosis. He's not a team player in any way. I don't blame Wawa for dumping him because he'd be a liability. Uh, Cheetah isn't a bad choice for the squad, though. I mean, she's got an edge, but she's not irredeemable. But the squad uh, got caught up in some major event stories afterward. Uh, can you talk about what happened there? I sure can, Steve. Um, during the Forever Evil event in the New 52, the crime syndicate basically takes over the world, and the Suicide Squad is one of two villain groups that stand against them, with the others being the rogues. However, it is not Task Force X, according to Amanda Waller. There there are multiple multiple arms of, task, of the Task Force, and it's actually Task Force Y that fights the syndicate. Task Force Y was assembled by Deadshot after he was brought on by Waller. Deadshot recruits Harley, and then in turn recruit they recruit Captain Boomerang. And for the record, their nanite bombs are not in place at this point. The thinker who works for the crime syndicate poses as Waller and recruits Warrant, Steel, and Unknown Soldier under the banner of the new Suicide Squad, and soon the two teams are fighting each other. Then, to complicate matters further, the team has to deal with Omak, who is a mega powerful and takes out several people, including Power Girl, Steel, Unknown Soldier, and King Shark in the Rockies. Back at Belle Reve, Deadshot and Harley find magic bullets, which temporarily give them superpowers. Deadshot shoots one into himself, Harley, Waller, and Unknown Soldier, and they are able to fight and defeat Omak. However, afterwards, Waller reveals that the magic bullets were actually the new nanobomb, and that they are now primed to keep working for Task Force X. 
One thing that is never actually resolved to my knowledge is the Samsara serum, which Bell Reeves doctor used to uh, resurrect dead suicide squad members like Deadshot and Voltaic and, and at least by implication, Amanda Waller. Uh, the unresolved issue is that the serum ultimately kills everyone who takes it. So technically, Amanda Waller was supposed to die unless they find a resolution, but the story was just dropped. Um, the two-way teams aspect of this is interesting. On the one hand, I can understand Waller wanting to expand her operation because hero teams multiply like rabbits and villainous threats keep growing all the time. So it makes sense that she'd feel the need to do that. At the same time, one Suicide Squad is dangerous and volatile enough. So adding another team, especially one that could end up at cross purposes with Task Force X, is adding a stick of dynamite to a raging fire. I, I'm guessing this is why Waller was trying to add new fail-safes, but even with all that, all those villains are going to be difficult to manage. It sounds like Waller reached too far and it nearly got her that time. But I can't imagine that DC would ever permanently kill Waller. I think she's probably the most essential character in the entire series, and I can't see anyone else taking her place. So even if they'd gone through with it, they'd have had to reverse it somehow. I have to agree with you there. Waller is not a character they can kill off. I think she has become a sen an essential part of the functionality of the DCU. Uh, but I believe there was a little side trio you wanted to talk about another villain group, wasn't there, Steve? Yeah, at least briefly. I mean, even though this is a different group, I wanted to take an aside and mention the Secret Six because they do have history with the squad. They've even had crossovers with each other, and, uh, and King Shark was a member of that group for a while, too. The main reason why the six tends to come up in relation to the squad, though, is that Deadshot is a founding member of both teams. Uh, Deadshot also has some really memorable dynamics with teammates on both groups. In the case of the squad, it's Lawton's rivalry and friendship with Captain Boomerang. With the Secret Six, Lawton has a very strong odd couple friendship with Catman uh, Thomas Blake, as well as other teammates like Scandal Savage. The Secret Six is a ragtag group of minor villains that was gathered by Luthor Society of Villains. This happened during a, a mini-series called Villains United, which was written by Gail Simone and drawn by Dale Eagleson. Uh, the original six included Catman, who was reinvented as kind of a darker version of Tarzan, uh, Deadshot, uh, Scandal, who was the daughter of Vandal Savage, uh, Dollman, who is a crazy contortionist and kind of the Deadpool of the group, um, Knockout, who is a new goddess from Apocalypse who becomes Scandal's girlfriend, and a parademon. Uh, Gail admitted to being influenced by John Ostrander and Suicide Squad, especially when it came to using Deadshot, but I think the influence is why Secret Six sometimes becomes an influence on Suicide Squad-related projects, uh, like the Hell to Bay animated film, and I'll get into those connections when we talk about that movie. Uh, Villains United, though, showed how the Secret Six breaks from the society and go on their own, and a couple of members of the team die, uh, another thing they took from uh, Suicide Squad. After um, Villains United, uh, the six, including Deadshot, uh, spun off into an ongoing Secret Six title where Lawton's friendship with Catman becomes front and center in the book. That book also brought in Nicola Scott as the artist, and in my view, Gail's run with Nicola Scott is the, what is the best period in the entire book. A lot of characters come in and come and go from the six as well, but the core of Catman, Deadshot, uh, Scandal Savage, and Dollman is pretty consistent for most of the run. Um, you even get Bane as a member in the ongoing run, and he is great in that series. Uh, Bane has an adopted father-daughter relationship with Scandal, and it's very heartwarming. If you're a fan of Deadshot or uh, good morally ambiguous stories about DC villains, I consider Secret Six to be up there with the best of the SWAT stories. I did read Villains United as part of the Countdown to Infinite Crisis and as part of the crisis itself, uh, but I 
I don't think I stuck with it as far as you described there. I, I don't remember much beyond the Infinite Crisis event there. And those were all, actually all comics I lost in the fire, so there's really no rereading them. Um, but but let's move on to the movies. Uh, sure thing. Uh, the Squad would be adapted quite a few times, and honestly more than I remember beyond the two live-action films. So I guess we should start with the animated features. Sounds like a plan. In fact, I was thinking we would do this chronologically. Uh, Batman Assault on Arkham is a 2014 direct-to-video animated movie set in the Batman Arkham video game universe after Arkham Origins and about two years before Arkham Asylum. However, despite Batman headlining the title, this is more of a Suicide Squad movie than it is a Batman movie. In fact, Batman is kind of a side character in the film. Um, it was produced by James Tucker, directed by uh, Jay... Oliva and Ethan yeah. Spaulding and scripted by Heath Corson. Uh, Kevin Conroy plays Bruce Wayne uh, and Batman reprising his role from Batman in the DCAU and many other DC properties, including the Arkham video game series. Uh, Neil McDonough plays Deadshot. Uh, Hinden Waltz comes back to play Harley Quinn, uh, reprising her role from the WB, the Batman animated series from 2004. And Matthew Gray Goobler uh, plays the Riddler. Three people from Arkham Origins came back to reprise their ro roles. Uh, Troy Baker comes back as Joker, and he was actually in Arkham City as well. CCH Pounder plays Argus and Tax Force director uh, Amanda Waller, who some of you might also recognize from the DCAU uh, and uh, Superman Batman Public Enemies. Uh, Nolan North reprises his role as Penguin, and Martin Jarvis comes back to play Alfred Pennyworth. Last but certainly not least is Jennifer Hale reprising her role of Killer Frost from the DCAU and other properties. Um, I thought it was interesting that they decided to do this film set in the universe of the Arkham City games. I have all the games, but I never finished all of them. Uh, Assault on Arkham seemed like it was set after Arkham City, but it was never clear exactly when. But there are noticeable points of recognition like Penguin and the Batman suit design. I dig that Batman is generally in the backseat on this one, but when he does show up, he makes a real impact. And I'll always be happy when Kevin Conroy is in the role of Batman. I mean, he's still my favorite all-time Batman. But this is a really good voice cast, and they keep your attention. Um, finally, I'll point out that this is the Louise Lincoln version of Killer Frost, who I'm, which I'm mentioning mainly because this is a different character than the one who shows up in Hell to Pay. But Jennifer Hale is a great voice actress in the many, many things she's done, and she does well as Lincoln. That is a good point. DC has more than a few characters with the same name. So that was a good call pointing out that the assault on Arkham's Killer Frost is actually a different person. I, I personally didn't catch that before. Uh, but let's get into the story synopsis and, and hopefully I can I can avoid spoiling everything. Amanda Waller has it out for the Riddler, and she sends a black ops unit in to assassinate him because of what he knows. But her plan is foiled when Batman shows up and, like a badass, beats the crap out of a black ops unit, rescues Riddler, and returns him to Arkham where he belongs. So now the wall has to pull out all the stops to get Nigma, and she invokes Priority Ultraviolet, a.k.a. Uh, put Task Force X together, Waller has a mission. The team that was assembled included Black Spider, who views himself as a crime fighter, uh, Captain Boomerang, Deadshot, Harley Quinn, KG Beast, Killer Frost, and King Shark uh, for that tauntingly named Suicide Squad. Uh, did you notice that uh, while they were doing the intro scenes for each member of Task Force X that King Shark was in a hotel soaking in a bathtub full of blood? Uh, that is just hardcore. 
<laughs> no, but it really works. I, I don't know what this is, but it seems like King Shark has reinvented every single time I see him adapted. And every single version of him strangely works despite the lack of consistency. I think there's just something about the idea of Nanawe that really speaks to the different writers who have handled him. But this lineup of the squad is pretty solid, even if you're missing the Tolkien uh, Teen Conscience character. Conscious is definitely something missing from this version of the Suicide Squad. But you're right. I think this team works pretty well in spite of itself. Now, being on Task Force X always comes with getting a nanite bomb implanted in the base of your skull that will remove your head in less than a second. And this time was no different. KG Beast, however, did not believe Waller when she told him about the bomb in his neck. And as an example to the others, Waller detonated the bomb when he attempted to walk out. The remaining six are told that Riddler has what is basically the knock list of all the members who have ever been a part of a Suicide Squad, and they have to get the thumb drive uh, with the list from Riddler's cane. To do this, Harley gets herself caught by Batman and taken back to Arkham. But before the mission, Deadshot helps Harley with an itch she needs help scratching, and that's going to come up later. Uh, once Harley Quinn is inside, uh, she goes with the plan the Suicide Squad had come up with, while at the same time working her own mission to free the Joker and find the dirty bomb her and Joker had, and the one that Bat Batman is in fact looking for as well. Thanks to Killer Cross, Waller's real plan to assassinate the Riddler goes into motion at that point as well, as the rest of the team uses Harley as a distraction to get into Arkham. But basically, chaos erupts at that point. Joker releases Arkham's inmates, including Two-Face, Bane, who kills Killer, Killer Frost, Scarecrow, and Poison Ivy as a distraction to allow him to escape. Deadshot knocks Captain Boomerang out of a helicopter, leaving him in Arkham as he escapes to, in the chaos. Um, Harley taunts the Joker about having found a new and better man in Deadshot, and that pisses Joker off, and, Dead, and he and Deadshot get into a fairly decent fight, actually. Uh, Joker did better than I thought he would, and I'm actually kind of surprised Deadshot survived those last four stabs. I mean, those were deep and in good spots. <laughs> uh, but Deadshot <laughs> manages to pin him in a helicopter, and he falls from high up and the helicopter explodes. It gets pretty crazy, and I don't want to tell you everything in case you haven't seen it, but it is pretty good, and the ending is quite satisfying. I wasn't as surprised that KGB ended up being the expendable character in this film. He does tend to be that guy who shows up for Batman or Nightwing to beat up on, but he didn't start out that way. He's a villain who I think is establishing himself nicely as a Nightwing villain uh, now because Beast was the guy who shot him and murdered uh, him amnesiac for a while. Still, I think you need that one villain who's going to be stupid and get himself blown up and Beast got elected. But you're right that the plot works pretty well and you get some nice twists and turns. I love the plan that Batman plays on the squad and the one fight you get with the two of them shows that the bat is not to be messed with. Oh, yes, it did. Uh, Batman is badass in the Arkhamverse. As someone who has played the first two Arkhamverse games, Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, I really appreciated the fight scenes with Batman. The fight style and the gadgets used were right out of the game. As the fighting style was was really one of the cool parts of those two games, I just, I just really liked that. Uh, we've talked already about how much I love Deadshot, so it was great seeing him in a leadership position. He was definitely my favorite part of the film, but I do have to mention a particular scene that comes to mind. Waller uses the opportunity of Task Force X falling at terminal velocity to do a little power play. Remember this feeling, convicts. Hold, I hold your life in my hands. I mean, that is some cold and sadistic shit, uh, but it certainly gets the point across. I mean, what did you think about Batman Assault on Arkham, Steve? 
Oh, I generally like this film. I think they got a lot of the basics right while keeping true to the Arkham games. Waller is absolutely chilling in this film, and I like the boomerang Lawton feuding. Even the lesser-known villains in this film get some good moments here and there. I mean, I am starting to get a little tired of Joker constantly showing up in squad-related things because of Harley, but I didn't mind it too much here. Um, I also really like the art style, and by this point, they're bringing in some good Korean animators who give the film a nice visual flavor. All in all, I think I'd recommend this one. I would definitely recommend Batman Assault on Arkham as well. It is a solid flick and one that I think is a lot of fun. That, however, is not something I can say about the next entry I'm going to talk about. Suicide Squad came out in 2016 as the third DCEU film. However, unlike Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman, Suicide Squad was not directed by Scott Snyder. Snyder was an executive producer on the film, however. Uh, but there were a lot of producer fingers in the Suicide Squad pie. Um, it was also produced by Warner Brothers Pictures, Rat Pack, Dune Entertainment, DC Films, and Atlas Entertainment. Suicide Squad was written and directed by David Ayer. However, Ayer's vision is far from what we get in the film. Due to complaints about Batman vs. Superman being too dark and somber, Warner Brothers released a trailer for Suicide Squad that made the film appear more lighthearted and comedic. However, as if they had no idea what David Ayer had written in the script, they became worried that the actual movie would not match their trailer. And guess what? They were right. <laughs> Consequently, the film was edited and re-edited multiple times by a few different people as they desperately tried to turn the movie into something it wasn't. 2014's Guardians of the Galaxy. Jared Leto's character, who according to Leto had enough scenes to practically make a Joker movie, was cut down to a mere 15 minutes and 22 million dollars worth of reshoots were done in 2016. And you can tell there were multiple conflicting visions for the film. It comes across as a confusing and jumbled mess. Like I said, too many fingers in one pie. It would seem that the studio finally got what they wanted, however, when they got Guardians of the Galaxy co-writer and director James Gunn to make 2021's The Suicide Squad. But we'll get into that in a few. Uh, you can tell by the music clips, uh, multiple intros for each character, the character sheet they did for each one. All of these things are taken directly from Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I hadn't realized the Guardians connection until you mentioned it, but that makes a weird kind of sense. It is true that the stylistic approach that they took with it is consistent with Guardians. At the same time, I have to agree that Ayer took a more serious tone with the film, and that bubblegum pop approach didn't fit too well with those elements. Um, I've heard more than once that there's an Ayer cut that represents what David Ayer really wanted to make without the studio interference, but who knows if we'll ever see it. Still, I actually don't overall dislike the theatrical cut of the film, even if it's a film that gets a lot of criticism. Um, just as a quick side note, um, I'm fairly certain we are never going to get that David Ayer cut. Uh, as it is, Warner Brothers uh, regrets uh, releasing that uh, Zack Snyder cut of Justice League as it further div divided the fans against them. So I, I just don't see them throwing that David Ayer cut out there. Um I actually only watched the extended cut of the film, uh, which is about 12 minutes longer. And it actually does uh, more extended scenes than it does actually adding in new ones. Uh, but I think it is a better version. That said, 
I thought most of the film was very well cast. Will Smith, who I genuinely, I generally love, by the way, uh, played my favorite character, Deadshot, and there were times that he was okay. Uh, but there were also lines from him that really just took me out of the moment, uh, like Deadshot telling Flag to go slap June on the ass and tell her to knock it off, or telling Flag to white people his daughter through college. It was moments like these that just really ruined it for me. The, these are just not things that Deadshot would say. I, I honestly believe Deadshot would want his daughter to work her way through college, uh, personally. Uh, Margot Robbie is, however, the perfect on-screen Harley Quinn. Uh, Joel Kinnaman, I thought, did a decent Rick Flag, uh, But after hearing you describe him from the comic, I, I don't think so now. Uh, Viola Davis does uh, the best and Amanda Waller I have ever seen. Uh, Jai Courtney plays Captain Boomerang. Jay Hernandez does a really good job as Chato Santana, a.k.a. El, El Diablo. Adewale Akinoye uh, Agbaje. Sorry, that was hard for me to pronounce. Plays Killer Croc. Uh, Karen uh, Fukuhara plays Katana quite well. I thought she was very badass. And uh, Kara Delevingne plays Dr. June and the Enchantress. You know, um, Joel Kinnaman actually is a good flag, but you don't see it in this movie. Um, he's much more comics accurate in the James Gunn version, and Kinnaman plays him well there. In this movie, he's a bit darker and more of a conventional soldier, and that's really not quite flag. Um, I think this is the writing and directing and not a fall of Kinnaman's, especially since it's clear he can do flag well when he's given the right environment and material. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even realize it was the same actor in both films at first. The two versions really are that different. Oh, yeah. There, there is a night and day difference between the two characters, despite being played by the same actor. Yeah, but I agree that the cast uh, generally holds up well. Uh, I think aside from Joker, the only choice that I found odd was Cara Delevingne, who didn't really have the presence as a villain that I would have liked. Enchantress is a being of otherworldly power and menace, and Delevingne just lacked something. I mean, you really need somebody like an Ava Green to make that kind of character work. But I loved uh, just about everybody else in this film, except in, especially uh, Viola Davis, uh, Will Smith, uh, Ro Margot Robbie as Harley, uh, Jai Courtney, uh, Jay Hernandez, and Karen Fukuhara's Katana. In fact, uh, Fukuhara probably got her role as Kimiko on The Boys on the strength of her work in this film. Oh, Eva Green would have been a would have been a better choice. I agree. Uh, my guess is that uh, uh, De Levine was chosen because of her very emotional face, as opposed to being able to carry a presence like Green would have. Uh, her her very expressional face was easy to emphasize with, uh, but but I'm just guessing. As far as my thoughts on the film go, I can say it was the 2016 movie that made me want to start reading the Suicide Squad comics, and I'm grateful for that. Also, there are some things I really like about the film. For instance, Jared Leto's Joker is amazing. He is totally a mix of the anarchist and gangster from the comics. I also thought his scenes with Harley were done very well. You really get that mad love feel from what I see in the movie. In fact, speaking of which, uh, they did something interesting I was not expecting with the Joker and Harley story. They made Harley Quinn pregnant with twins, or at least they implied the shit out of it. Did you notice that when Joker is in the room surrounded by all those weapons, he's just miserable as hell over the loss of Harley after she was taken by Batman to Belle Reeve? And there are two baby outfits spread out next to each other among the weapons. 
Uh, very interesting, I thought. And you'll notice that Harley says to Chata Santana that normal is a setting on the washer and not something that people like them can have. I think she was more talking uh, to herself there. Uh, but when the Enchantress is showing uh, them visions uh, of their dreams, Harley's fantasy starts with the normal setting on the washing machine and then a vision of her joke of her and Joker with the twins without the white skin and living a suburban life. Uh, that is one element of this movie that I thought went moderately deep. And it also tackled something about Joker and Harley that, that you just got to wonder, I mean, do they ever just want a normal life even for just a second? Uh, also, just imagine the family dynamics of Joker and Harley as parents of twins. <laughs> I'm trying not to. <laughs> um, I, I actually didn't notice the baby outfits uh, either time I watched this film. I, I must be losing my touch, but that is a really good catch and a nice visual character element. I do think it's interesting that they raised the question. I don't think that Joker wants a normal life at all. I mean, maybe he might if he was sane, like the White Knight version, but um, I think he's too much in love with chaos. A normal life which is bored to tears. Now, Harley is a different story, but I'll touch on that in a bit. Anyway, I'm probably biased because of my distaste for Joker in general, but I just have mixed feelings about Jared Leto as Joker. I mean, there are things I like about it, and I do like the moments where Harley, Joker and Harley are dancing, which comes straight out of Alex Ross paying. I dig details like that, but I think Jared Leto has a tendency to overdo his method acting, where sometimes he just tries too hard and it works against his performance. Uh, contrast that with Blade Runner 2049, where Leto's performance is more subdued and Neander Wallace is more menacing because of that. Uh, I feel like his Joker might have gone too far over the top, and I think it suffers in comparison to others who have played the role. I don't hate Leto's Joker. It's good enough for what he does in this film, but I do think he could have done it better than we saw here. I mean, we've seen him be truly terrifying in other roles he's done, and I don't think he quite hits the right note in this film. But to return to your question for a moment, I did like that Harley's fantasy was a normal life with Joker. And that adds to the tragedy of her character because that dream will never, ever happen. He's too insane to ever settle down with a normal person or like a normal person. Um, Harley does eventually seem to realize this because she walks away from him later, but it's a romantic dream that is self-destructive. In the end, that relationship is extremely toxic, especially for Harley. Definitely a toxic relationship and a codependent one as well. I think that there's a small part of Joker, a remnant from when he was still sane, that does want a normal life with wife and kids, or, or maybe maybe even just appreciating uh, the, the idea of it, even if he doesn't actually want it. At least that's the impression I got from the killing joke. But uh, it's something that uh, he can't go back to, not anymore. I think that for Mr. J, Harley offers some semblance of that. But at the same time, he's too broken now to accept it. And the chaos in him fights against it. That is why he tortures Harley in Arkham and tries to break up with her. But, but why don't we get into the next Suicide Squad film we're going to talk about, Steve? Because I'm actually pretty excited about this one. Awesome, and I admit I am too. Um, in 2018, DC released a Suicide Squad animated film called Hell to Pay. This was the last animated film that Alan Burnett wrote before his retirement from the DC Animation Department. Uh, Sam Liu was the director, and he's someone who's done quite a bit of work for animated projects at both Marvel and DC. In addition, you had a cast including uh, Christian Slater as Deadshot, Vanessa Williams as Amanda Waller, Billy Brown as Bronze Tiger, Liam McIntyre as Captain Boomerang, Tara Strong as Harley Quinn, um, Gideon Emery as Copperhead, and Kristen Bauer Van Straten as the Crystal Frost version of Killer Frost. The villains included Vandal Savage, Zoom, 
blockbuster, um, Mark Desmond, who is the brother of Nightwing's arch nemesis, and Silver Banshee. That was a strong cast, too, even if I might have gone with different actors in a couple of cases. Christian Slater did a good dead shot, uh, better than I imagined, actually. I was pretty fond of Neil McDonough, who voiced Deadshot in Assault on Arkham, probably because it was the first time I had heard his voice. Uh, but I'm assuming they wanted the universe to be separate, and, and that totally makes sense. And Slater was a great choice. Uh, Billy Brown did a, did a great job with Bronze Tiger. You could hear the weight in Ben's turn... Ben Turner was carrying in his voice. Uh, Vanessa Williams plays a good Waller in Hell to Pay, one a bit more in line with the New 52, which these films are based on. My guess is that that's why she replies, reprised the role in 2019's Batman Hush. Uh, but again, I think I prefer CCH Pounder from Batman Assault on Arkham between the two very talented actresses, at least as far as the animated Waller goes. Uh, but in my head, when I picture the wall and I hear Waller, it is Viola Davis that I'm seeing and hearing. Uh, did you have a favorite Waller, Steve? I'd have to go with Viola Davis as well. I mean, she sinks into that role, and she's cold and formidable. Uh, Williams was okay in this film, but I don't think her performance hits quite the same notes for me. Pounder from Exalt and Arkham did a perfectly giant, fine job as well, but again, I feel like Davis is that character more than anyone else who's done it. Anyway, one of the reasons I brought up Secret Six earlier is that Hell to Pay borrows a decent chunk from that comic. The main plot line concerns a get-out-of-hell-free card that allows the user to avoid hell if he or she dies while holding it. The first arc of Secret Six, it revolves around that entire storyline. In addition, Vandal Savage is one of the main villains in this film, and he's more of a Secret Six villain. As an aside, I think it's weird that Vandal would go after the card because he can't die, but whatever, um, moving on. Um, Scandal Savage and Knockout are even brought in as antagonists in this movie, and both of them were members of the Secret Six. I don't think they're handled as well as they were in the comic, though. I mean, this movie seems to forget that Knockout is bulletproof. I mean, she's a new god, and she was an on-time opponent of the Connell version of Superboy. She's not going to get shot down like we see in this film. But it's more of a minor annoyance than a real problem. But in any case, the movie borrows a lot from Secret Six. I mean, so much so that it's a Six movie as much as it is a Squad movie. That is actually really cool that they adapted the story like that. Uh, it was a great way to introduce the Suicide Squad to the new 52-based uh, animated universe they were building. Um, I didn't actually know that was an adaptation. But then again, I didn't know Constantine City of uh, Demons was an adaptation either. So what the hell do I know? Um, I was not familiar with the knockout character, but I did think it was off when she said she was from Apocalypse and that bullets could harm her. As to wondering why Savage would need the card if he can't die, Vandal actually says that he is immortal and not invulnerable and had actually had many uh, brushes with death. Uh, but maybe that's just something that's different in the DCAU. Yeah, maybe I think so. Although that explanation still felt kind of hollow to me, if I'm honest. I mean, I think if they wanted to have Vandal and Scandal in the movie for the Secret Six connection... Um, I appreciate that they tried to explain it, but I don't think Vandal was the right villain for a story like this. Still, I was able to brush it off enough that I could enjoy the film despite that issue. The other weird thing about this film is that it falls up from Flashpoint Paradox by using Zoom. At first, I wasn't sure which version of Zoom it was because the film doesn't make it clear at first. It's a weird thing for Eobard Fond to do because he typically doesn't rely on other villains. He's a petty and sadistic psychopath who tends to destroy anyone who crosses him. Um, Hunter Zolomon, who is the Zoom that is Wally West's archfoe, would do that, but I don't think he cared that much about the card. He thinks what, he, what he's doing is good. 
so what we ultimately find out, though, is that this is Thawne, but he's dying and sustaining his life with super speed. Now, I buy Thawne wanting to get the card because of the many horrible things he's done, but he just seems a bit off in this film. I think I might have had an advantage there because I knew from the first time I watched it that it was a new the new 52 zoom. Um, I can see how that would have been confusing if you didn't know that going in. Honestly, it I, it didn't I didn't even think about it or I would have told you about that before you watched it. Yeah, if you're more invested in those other animated films or if you're a huge Flashpoint fan, you're probably not going to think about it and and that's cool. Still, I think there's a lot I like about Hell to Pay even with all I've mentioned. I mean, I like the dynamics with the squad. Um, I like Bronze Tiger a lot in this film, and it is consistent with the Ostrander version of Bronze Tiger. Um, I like that this movie had Amanda Waller go after the card because she knows she's going straight to hell after what she's done. <laughs> and I and I like the ending. I, I thought the right person got the card in the end, and I like that Deadshot makes sure he got it. It's not a bad film at all, and it's got some fun stuff with the squad driving around the country in a Winnebago. What's not to love? <laughs> for me suicide squad hell to pay is the best suicide squad filming uh we have got animated or live action it just hits all the right notes for me uh there are so many things i liked about it i liked that there were multiple double crosses going on with the team stuff like that makes it so you just can't trust anyone and that is exactly what the uh, what the characters themselves are going through like julie betraying punch because she was with count vertigo i did not see that coming i don't know about you uh but then there is also the double cross of Amanda Waller actually putting Deadshot on a secret mission to root out the traitor amongst the Suicide Squad. I didn't know it was going to play out like it did, uh, uh, but I knew something was up as soon as they said Deadshot was not in charge. Um, I also enjoyed Killer Frost's double cross on Zoom for the card, followed by Captain Boomerang double crossing Deadshot for the card. <laughs> but the greatest double cross of them all was Deadshot letting Bronze Tiger use the card and then giving it to waller anyway just a nice little fuck you waller <laughs> and speaking of that and to what you said earlier i really like that bronze tiger got his redemption in the end it, it made for a cool character arc for him uh, did you notice that the bus they got to replace that busted up winnebago said heavenly missions on the side of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got a good laugh out of that when i saw it i mean trust a bunch of retrobates like the squad to seal a church bus <laughs> um I, I did think that the twist with punch julie and count vertigo at the beginning was clever i mean i figured everybody but deadshot was going to end up dead but i didn't realize it would be because julie teamed up with vertigo to sell out the squad <laughs> You chose the wrong friends, as Bel Rene Belloc would say. And then the double cross by Killer Frost at the end was nicely done as well. I, I, I do like the movie tries to keep you guessing about certain things. Yeah, you can't trust anyone in this movie. One of the things that makes Hell to Pay my favorite Suicide Squad movie is that it is the goriest of all of the DC animated movies. Lots of blood, some brain matter, some bone, and blown up and severed bodies. Watching Count Vertigo's head blow up was freaking awesome. <laughs> In fact, the movie has a fully adult feel to it. Uh, there, These are intended for an adult audience. There is not just strong violence and gore. There is language, drug use, and drug reference as well as sexual humor and adult themes. I mean, they are—they really earned that R rating with this animated film, even more so than other DCAU films with an R rating. Other films have had aspects of Hell to Pay's adult content, but not all of it. Compare it to other films from the DCAU with an R rating, R rating like Batman the Killing Joke, 
That was a dark story with very adult themes, but still more of a psychological horror. Or what about Constantine, City of Demons, which I think got its R rating mostly due to its horror-like supernatural story. They all have some elements here and there from what is in Hell to Pay, but not turned up to 11 like this. That's fair. I, I don't mind a more toned-down squad, but I also totally see where upping the blood and gore works for the series. That mix of war film and supervillains gives you a bit of license to push the level of content, and I think it works both here and then the next film we mentioned. So let's get into the most recent movie. While I didn't think the air film was too bad, I did think that the Suicide Squad could have been done better. So when James Gunn left Marvel Studios briefly after uh, Guardians Volume 2, he decided to go to DC and make the movie he always wanted to make. And that turned out to be The Suicide Squad, which released in 2019. Gunn had admitted at one point that he took Guardians because he saw them as Marvel Suicide Squad in a way. Um, I don't quite agree with that take, but Gunn had real passion for John Ostrander's work on The Squad. And I think that that showed on The Suicide Squad. So I'll be honest, this ended up being not just my favorite Suicide Squad film, but one of my favorite DC films in general. Um, I think Gunn's got so much about the the squad right in this movie and it comes straight out of the books i enjoyed the film quite a bit in 2021 but i must admit to liking the film a lot more on the second viewing it is definitely one of the better films in the dceu and i love the strong connection to the comics as well as well um it's it's really cool when they pull right from the source material that's the strength of this film agreed um the beautiful thing about this movie is that gun never invalidates anything out of the air film he just runs with it and does his own thing. He keeps most of the main actors from the first movie, uh, Viola Davis as Waller, uh, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, uh, Joel Kinnaman as Rick Flagg, and Giant Courtney as uh, Captain Boomerang. He just gives them more uh, comic-accurate looks, especially Kinnaman as Flagg. Um, all of the new additions that Gunn brings in the work and are faithful to the comics. I mean, he brings in Sylvester Stallone um, as Nanawe, a.k.a. King Shark, which is absolutely a beautiful piece of casting. And as an aside, um, John Agee, who played Economos, was uh, the physical model for him. Uh, Nanawe is a great character in this movie. But the real stars of the movie, aside from Warlord, Harley, and Flag, are all the obscure minor villains, and they're all great characters in this film. Idris Elba plays Bloodsport, who is a real Superman villain who um, is basically retooled in the Deadshot role as a more Deathstroke-like character, and it works. Um, John Cena plays Peacemaker, which ends up being probably the role of his career. You get some villains even comics fans don't know about, and they're great. Especially Daniela Melchior as Ratcatcher, uh, Peter Capaldi as Gaius Greaves, and David Dasmalkian as Polka Dot Man. <laughs> and then you get some really cool walk-ons as disposable villains, including Michael Rooker as Savant, Nathan Fillion, uh, Captain Mal Ronalds himself as the Detachable Kid, uh, previously known as Arm Fall Off Boy, and Pete Davidson as Blackguard. Um, he also brings in a, some good supporting cast, including uh, Steve Agee as John Economos, um, who was in the original Suicide Squad, and he's perfectly cast. Um, and Jennifer Holland is Amelia Harcourt, both of whom go on to join the cast of the Peacemaker TV series. Even Ostrander himself is in this thing. He's the scientist who implants the nanobombs early in the film and says, good dog. <laughs> I also love the stylistic uh, visual approach of the film and the way Starro was used as the final boss of this film. I love that Savant broke under the pressure of battle as he was the first to break in the New 52 comics as well. It's clear that the people on Team A weren't really intended to survive, so it's no wonder Savant would end up on that unit. I also like that the Thinker showed up in the film. Uh, he was an enemy of the Suicide Squad during the Forever Evil event. I guess I just like the New 52 stuff in the film as that's what I'm more familiar with. 
Oh, that's fair. Um, I wasn't familiar with Reeves, uh, but I am glad to see that they picked from different eras of the squad. And as a 12th Doctor fan, I am always happy to see Peter Capaldi play a mad scientist. Um, the scene with Savant just losing it worked for me, too. I mean, this is a guy who's never been in a war zone, and he's seeing his teammates get torn to shreds. It's understandable why he panic and not think about getting blown up by Waller until it's too late. But that moment sets the tone for this movie. It's a different kind of film for what Ayer did, but without taking anything away from Air Squad, I think Dunn's version works better than that one did. The tone is lighter and more comedic, sure, but it feels like a superhero comic, and it gets all the elements that Suicide Squad has always been about. It's got the political elements, the war comic elements. It has obscure characters that are made interesting, and it has character deaths that have real impact. It just feels the most true to what Ostrander wrote of all the films I've seen today. While Guardians of the Galaxy and the Suicide Squad are different teams with different motivations, the half-serious, half-joking spirit that James Gunn brought seems to be in both films. I definitely think this was the more lighthearted and comedic approach that Warner Brothers wanted back in 2016. But as I mentioned before, they clearly read the script and knew that David Ayer, who mostly does crime dramas and thrillers, was not going to be making a lighthearted com uh, and comedic movie. Honestly, I think I would prefer something closer to the darker and more serious tone that Ayer would have brought uh, if left to complete his vision, but I cannot deny that Suicide Squad is a very fun movie, and I have to tip my hat to James Gunn as a director. There was some really cool gory stuff, like those two soldiers getting their sides blown out, or King Shark ripping that soldier in half from top to bottom. I just gotta say, anytime somebody is ripped in half from top to bottom, I'm gonna be a fan of that scene. <laughs> that was great stuff, and I can't help but notice that gun was wearing an Alice Cooper t-shirt and a shirt with Jason Voorhees on it during fil filming. Uh, you know I like that. He's obviously into horror. Uh, but he also did a lot of creative things visually, like using things in the environment to spell out uh, segment shifts and mark chapters in the story. I also really liked the camera work, which was in part due to the RED cameras they were using to film the movie. You know, back in the day, the big leap forward in filming came with the Panaglide cameras. They were great because they could be moved around without the shaky cam handheld look. Uh, but it really seems like these uh, new digital RED cameras are an evolution in the process. Not only are they super light and small and can easily glide around the film set, what's more is they actually they capture raw digital images, which gives you exactly what the camera sees without any compression or filtering of any kind. This allows absolute control over the image's sharpness and color and everything in a digitized fashion. Uh, that is a huge deal in cinematography, especially in the day and age of CGI. And speaking of camera work, I also like the shot uh, during the Peacemaker and Flag fight where we're seeing the fight in the reflection of Peacemaker's helmet. Uh, that looked really cool. Technically, the Suicide Squad uh, seems to be right on point with the performances of the actors and actresses, the cinematography, the choreography, and the special effects. And of course, all of that worked together so well because James Gunn was the director. Um, I agree it is a shame that we're probably never going to see uh, the A or cut of the first film, but I gotta give WB this. Um, if the tone you want is more aligned along the lines of Guardians of the Galaxy, then the best idea is to go to the source, and that's James Gunn. Uh, DC probably wanted a film uh, with that tone featuring lesser-known characters, and he definitely delivered on that. But I think Gunn had enough respect for the Suicide Squad as it was in the comics, and he never slavishly repeats his old formula too much. Instead, he takes the movie more into dark comedy, gets a lot more bloody with it, and takes the humor into a more adult space. 
as a quick side note, um, as you mentioned before, uh, James Gunn agreed to do Guardians of the Galaxy because it was similar to the Suicide Squad. Um, now they, they both they both uh, have, have have not good people put in situations uh, where they have to be heroes in spite of myself. Uh, my point being is that Gunn uh, was a Suicide Squad fan before he was a Guardians of the Galaxy fan, and I think it shows in this movie. You know, Gunn calls it calls suicide, the Suicide Squad his it's the film he's always wanted to make. Uh, that's a fair point, and that definitely shows. But like you, I enjoy how stylistic this movie gets with the action and the different set pieces. For example, I think the title cards for each chapter are all done really elegantly, and it fits the superhero comic tone. I mean, the one with the blood in the water was cleverly done is just one example. But I think my favorite is still Starro versus the Suicide Squad title, which looks like something the comic might have done. Oh, yeah, 100%. That stuff, particularly that bit with the blood in the water, is totally something that would be in the comics. And I really appreciated that as well. Definitely agreed on that. But then you get some really brilliant scenes like Harley's Breakout, which is part ballet, partly brutal gunplay, and partly a Looney Tunes live-action cartoon. That's really the best way I can describe it. <laughs> I mean, Harley is tearing through all these guards, and you see dead guys on the ground with little canaries flying in circles over their heads. It feels really experimental and fresh, and it's completely in tune with Harley's point of view. I, I could very easily see Harley imagining the world around her like as a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But I think you had some comments on Harley in this film that you wanted to share, Mike? I definitely do, Steve. And and about that scene in particular, too. Uh, but in a second, um, I feel like I have to preface this uh, to really set up my point. It does not happen with all serial killers. Uh, but there are certainly some that believe they are doing good work by killing their victims. As a DC Comics example, I would point to Victor Zaz. Uh, Victor Zaz is a nihilist, which means that he believes that all life is meaningless and that nothing and no one matters. So when he kills, he sees it as a gift that he is giving to his victims. All of that to say, I think we get a hint of that in Harley's statement after killing Sylvia Luna, after uh, after he talks about killing the children. She says, but all in all, I think you're more pretty like this, with all of those rotten thoughts emptied from your head. Uh, consider that she used the word pretty when describing the bleeding corpse of a man she just killed. And then think about the scene where she is mowing down a hallway full of men and and beyond her, hundreds of flowers are bursting and she is full of joy. Add to this that immediately following that, flowers burst from every wound she inflicts on them and floats and they float around her. I wondered why it was flowers and then it hit me. Uh, they are pretty and they smell good and as a general rule, women like them a lot. I think Gunn is telling us that she sees what she is doing as beautiful and pleasant as flowers. But not just what she is doing, also the carnage she leaves behind. You'll note that when she is getting into the cab after that scene, there are cartoon birds still chirping, implying a little madness. And the flowers are still floating around the room in the hallway she came out of. There are dozens of bodies in that hallway and blood everywhere. Awesome. I, I'm on board with all that. I think it's a scene that really makes you see in Harley's mind while also giving Margot Roby time to shine. I think it's her best action scene as Harley to date. Um, I also add that I like her characterization in this film better than I do in mo most of the recent things I've seen Harley in. I mean, one of the issues I had with the Harley cartoon, for instance, is that she never seems to learn from anything she does. That is not the case in this film. We see that Harley realizes that she still has issues with the Joker, and she realizes she has an unhealthy attraction to complete psychos. Maybe some of that is that she's a trained psychiatrist and she's capable of at least some of self-awareness because of that. Maybe some of it is bitter experience. 
But either way, Harley's decision to kill Luna is a great surprise moment that also fits her character perfectly. Harley gets a good character arc in this movie, but Gunn is so good at balancing characters that I never feel like she's taking over the film uh, at any point. It's absolutely an ensemble movie, even though Harley gets some important scenes. I like that too, now that you mention it. There was a really good balance with Harley while giving her a great character arc for the story. In fact, with several of the characters, you get a good sense of who they are and they all get their decent arcs in the film. In the comics, if Harley shows up, she basically takes over the story. Uh, but I like that balance, as you said. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's one of Gunn's real strengths when it comes to superhero films. Um, before we go, I'll also add that even though we're not covering the Peacemakers TV series, I recommend that you see it because it's awesome and it falls on the Suicide Squad well. But uh, it looks like that covers everything for this episode. It's been fun to look back at the Suicide Squad, and I know I'm looking forward to digging through more of their comics after this. So until next time, thanks for spending time with us, and I'd like to thank all of our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.